transformational story from the Bible. I really, really love the Bible. I'm fascinated by it. I love its stories. I love its poetry. I love its history. It's been, um, it's encapsulated me since I was a small boy, really. I've been fascinated with it for many years. And, and all these years later, I'm still finding new hidden depths. I'm still discovering things that I'd never seen before. Sean, and my wife, who is uh, far cleverer than me, is currently studying her theology masters. And um, last week, we went out for our wedding anniversary. 15 years, um, still going, and uh, we went to a nice restaurant, and we had a glass of wine each, and we spent the whole night just chatting about theology. It was absolutely wonderful, and you might think that's a bit sad, but um, I don't know, I just find it more compelling than um, Love Island, I suppose, what do a, what a normal people talk about, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> But it's my joy and it's my privilege to be able to share with you another story from the Bible this morning. And this is a story from the first book in the Bible, so it should be easy to find. It's a book called Genesis, um, if you've got your Bibles with you. And uh, Genesis is a, a complicated book. In that it likely had several contributors or editors over a significant period of time. But generally, Genesis is split into two portions. Chapters 1 to 11 are all about God and um, the universe, about his Creation starts with the creation narrative, as I'm sure many of you are aware. Um, but chapters 12 to 50, they, they kind of zoom in a little bit and they take a look at the story of Abraham. Um, and specifically, the promise that God made to Abraham that through him would be born a great nation, that God would bless, and that that nation would in turn bless all nations on earth. And chapters 12 to 50, as I say, are really all about that story. And if you want to know a little bit more about the structure of Genesis, um, I can't recommend uh, enough the Bible Project videos on YouTube. You can just search for Genesis Bible Project, and they are really um, excellent videos that give us great introductions to every book in the Bible. Uh, but today we're going to be jumping in towards the end of the book, chapter 37. Um, and we're going to be looking at Abraham's grandson, a guy called Jacob, um, or more specifically, actually, his great-grandson, a guy called Joseph, who you may have heard of. Now, I'm going to warn you up front, this is quite a long story. It's a really good story. It's full of um, drama and intrigue, uh, but I'm going to need a couple of weeks to tell it well, unless you haven't got any other plans this afternoon, and we can just hang out. No, all right, well, in that case, this will be part one, um, and next week will be part two, um, and then we'll see if we need a part three, I'll let you know. Um, so we read in Genesis 37, verse one, and the words will be on the screen, there they are, um, for those that haven't got Bibles with them. But if you do have Bibles, I, do, I really encourage you to read along, to follow through. Uh, we're going to go through most of two chapters today, uh, and the good thing about that is that if God wants to say something different to you out of the Bible, then he can do that, can't he, while you're reading it, and you can just ignore me. Um, but I think it's just really helpful to be able to make your own notes and, and follow along. So Genesis 37 verse 1 says this, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Now, because Genesis is tracing Abraham's family line, we get lots of these genealogies in Genesis. And normally, they're just kind of uh, long lists of people. 
so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so. In fact, the previous chapter to this one um, traces the descendants of Esau, uh, Jacob's brother, and it's essentially just that, a list of names. It can be a bit tough to get through um, unless you're sort of looking for a baby name, uh, the sort of chapters we skip over often in the Bible. And normally they're not very exciting, but this one is a bit different because it takes the form of a story. And we're introduced to that story in verse 2 with these words. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, if you've got more than one child, I'm sure you might recognize this scenario here. Joseph's been hanging out with his brothers all day and he gets home and the first thing he does is go to his dad and start moaning, start complaining about his siblings. Oh, you won't believe what Dan called me today. Oh, and Asher, he hardly lifted a finger all day, just spent all day texting his girlfriend. She was hard back then because they didn't have phones. Um, oh, and don't even get me started on Gad. And, you know, classic, right? This is like sibling rivalry 101. I don't know about you, but the first thing I like to do when my kids complain to me about each other is turn it back on them and say, what about you? What did you do? What did you do to wind them up? What did you do to provoke them? And I do that for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, I want them to know that I know they're not completely innocent. Secondly, when they're trying to get me to stand up for them, I want them to know that I'm not entirely on their side. You know? um, and thirdly, and perhaps more honestly, often I just don't want to deal with it and I kind of want them to go away and sort it out amongst themselves. Of course, that never really works out, does it? But parenting is hard, isn't it? It's a challenge. So what does Jacob do? Well, it says, now Israel, um, and just to clear this up, Israel and Jacob are the same person. Israel was a name that was given to Jacob by God back in Genesis chapter 32. It says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. An ornate robe for him. Now if you're familiar with this story, you, you might be at this point saying, well, hold on a minute. I thought it was a Technicolor dream coat. <laughs> Not an ornate robe. And if you're thinking that, it's because you've been taking your theology from Andrew Lloyd Webber um, <laughs> and not the Bible. What is a dream coat anyway? Maybe a dressing gown. I'm not sure. Um, however, before you rewrite the narrative in your head, Webber may be right because no one actually knows what this particular Hebrew word means. King James Version says it's a tunic of many colors. The New Century Version says a special robe with long sleeves. Straight jacket. Um, <laughs> New Living Translation says a beautiful robe. The message says an elaborately embroidered coat. But we don't know. We don't know for sure. But it doesn't really matter because the, the point of this isn't the coat. It's the favoritism. Right. It's the fact that Joseph was the favorite. As it says in verse 4, when his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him hated him. I don't know if you've got favourites among your children. Uh, I'm not going to judge you if you do. Probably depends what they're doing, right? But my suggestion would be don't tell them. Just <laughs> don't let them know. So Joseph and his brothers, they didn't get on because Joseph was a tattletale, because Joseph was daddy's favourite, but also because Joseph had these really irritating dreams. And rather than keep the dreams to himself, 
um, he was a bit of a sharer. He liked to overshare, I would suggest. And in verse 6, it says, He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. It seems like the coat has gone to his head, perhaps. His brother said, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. We have to bear in mind, Joseph was one of the the youngest. Jacob had four wives and 12 sons. Um, Benjamin was the youngest. Joseph was the second youngest. And here he was claiming that he was going to rule over his brothers. One dream would have been bad enough, but then in verse 9, he has another dream, and he tells his brothers, he says, listen, I've had another dream, at which point you can sort of imagine they all roll their eyes and go, here we go. Um, This time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, 11, guess who they're meant to be, um, were bowing down to me. And then Joseph takes things a little bit too far because he decides to tell his father uh, and dad isn't too thrilled and tells him off. and says, what is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to you? Um, and that's in verse 10. And then sort of to maybe get a break, I think, from Joseph, Jacob sends him off to go and find um, his brothers out in the field tending the sheep. And we get this kind of weird uh, sidestep in the story where Joseph goes to where his brothers were supposed to be, um, but they're not there, so he has to ask for directions and then eventually he finds them. But all the time, I think what we're supposed to be imagining is that the brothers are out without Joseph, probably having a good old moan about him. Right. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is with his special coat and his silly dreams, constantly telling us what it's going to be like? We should teach him some humility. We should teach him a lesson. And so when they see him on the horizon in verse 19, they say, here comes that dreamer. And they spat, I imagine. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him and then we'll see what came of his dreams. Now, thankfully, Reuben, who was the eldest and therefore likely to get in the most trouble for whatever they did, Um, suggests that they shouldn't kill him, but rather leave him in the cistern. And the author tells us that Reuben had plans to come back and rescue Joseph later. But as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh. They were on the way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And all of his brothers agreed. I think at this point, Reuben had uh, wandered off somewhere. And so that's what they do. They pull him out of the cistern. They sell him for 20 shekels of silver to these Ishmaelites. They rip his cloak off him, or robe, or whatever it was, and they tear it, which I'm sure gave them great delight, and they cover it in goat's blood, and they deliver it back to Jacob, who assumes that his son has been killed by a ferocious animal and mourns. And meanwhile, Joseph is taken to Egypt as a slave. It's not a happy story so far, is it? In one chapter, Joseph has gone from being a beloved son in his father's house to a slave in a foreign land. And so, what happened? 
whose fault was it that Joseph ended up in this situation? Because that's the sort of question we ask, isn't it, when things go really wrong. What happened? How, how could this have happened to me? What, what went wrong? How did I end up here? You know, was it, was it Jacob's fault for his obvious favoritism, his elevation of Joseph over the rest of his brothers? Maybe Jacob's own sins, you know, four wives and 12 sons, there was bound to be some drama, right? Maybe it was his brother's fault. Certainly they had some of the blame. Their jealousy and their, their hatred led them to conspire against Joseph to sell him into slavery. Exactly. But what about Joseph himself? How much was he to blame for what happened? Telling tales on his brother? Complaining about them? Lording his dreams over them? I'm not suggesting that he deserved slavery, but he was hardly an innocent party in all of this, was he? Which leads us to another question. Who were the good guys and who were the bad guys in this story? Because nobody seems to have the moral high ground. Nobody appears to be righteous. Don't forget, we're tracing Abraham's family here. This is the beginnings of the nation that God is going to use to bless the world. And to be frank, they seem like a bit of a mess. No one seems to have it together. I think it's really important, actually, that we recognize that the Bible isn't full of these heroes, these good guys or these bad guys. With the exception of Jesus, it's just ordinary people who are wrestling with God's plan for their lives alongside their brokenness, their damage, their missteps, their misdeeds. And I'm, I'm grateful for that because that's my story too. I'm not perfect or morally outstanding. I see some of you nodding. I get things wrong all the time. I say the wrong things. I say things that hurt the people that I love. I mean, we all do it, right? And this, this story of sibling rivalry and family betrayal, this story of, of anger and, and greed and jealousy and hatred, this story of dashed hopes and dreams could be any of ours. I think that's one of the amazing things about the Bible, that all these years later, thousands and thousands of years later, we can recognize ourselves in its pages as we read. We all make mistakes and we all suffer the consequences of our own actions. And so what happens next? Well, chapter 38 is a bit of a sidestep from the main narrative. It looks at um, Judah, one of the other 12 brothers. Uh, and I haven't got time to kind of get into it this morning. Uh, but I will just say, if you read it in your own time, it's a, a good reminder of why the Bible isn't for children. But check that out yourself. But we rejoin the story of Joseph in chapter 39. Chapter 39, it says, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And then it says these words, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. This is the first time in the whole story that we've had any mention of God. Everything had been taken from Joseph. Everything had been stripped away from him snatched from him. His whole life had been turned upside down. He had lost everything except for the one thing that he could never lose. The Lord was with Joseph. 
And so he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything that he owned. You see, even in this mess of a situation, God was able to bless Joseph. And God was able to use Joseph to bless others. Even in the brokenness and the mess and the disaster of this situation, God was able to bless Joseph and use him to bless others, just as he had promised to do. And the thing is, you know, even when we've come to the end of ourselves, even when we've made a mess of our own lives, as we sometimes do, God is still able to use us. But we know what Joseph's like, right? He's, he's arrogant and he's full of himself. And last time, it was just the coat that sent him to Lally. Now he's in charge of a whole household. This isn't going to end well. To make matters worse, in verse 6, we read that Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, How are you doing? <laughs> Come to bed with me. Well-built handsome, arrogant, full of himself. We know how this story is going to end, right? It says in verse 8, but he refused. He refused. He tells him, my master has withheld nothing from me except for you because you are his wife. Then how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Wow. It seems like Joseph has finally learned some humility He's a changed man. Some of the flaws in his, his character seem to have been worked out. God seems to have used some of this hardship, some of this difficulty in his life to, to help form his character. Reminds me of James's words when he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Joseph, it seems, has been like, forged in the fires of suffering and grown to maturity. And from here on out, we can expect nothing but plain sailing and blue skies, a happy ending to our story. Except that's not quite how the story goes. You see, Potiphar's wife didn't understand that no means no, and she pursues him. Until one day when they're alone, she grabs him by the cloak and she says, again, come to bed with me and Joseph does this sort of shimmy out of the coat and he runs out of the door. But Potiphar's wife is so livid that she calls in the servants and she concocts a story about how he tried to rape her. And she screamed and he ran out leaving his coat. And she tells her husband that it says in verse 19, when his master heard the story his wife told him saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger and Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. What went wrong? What happened? This time Joseph had done nothing wrong. Nothing. He did the right thing. We might even conclude that Joseph was righteous in God's eyes. And yet through the actions of others, his life once again goes from really, really good to really, really bad. And you know, that's, that's just what life is like sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we find ourselves in rubbish circumstances because of a poor decision that we've made, because of a, a way that we've chosen to live our lives. And sometimes we end up in rubbish circumstances through no fault of our own. 
because of something that's been done to us by somebody else. Sometimes we even end up in rubbish circumstances um, and no one is to blame. It's just what happens. Life is just like that. It's It's ambiguous. Sometimes it just hits us out of nowhere and brings us to our knees. And those are really hard times to face. But again here, we read these words. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. You see, it doesn't matter if we're in a mess of our own making, a mess where we're entirely to blame, or whether we're in a mess that's been caused by somebody else, or even a mess with no explanation whatsoever. God is still with us. And you know what's more? There is no situation that we face, no thing that we go through, no difficulty that is, befalls us that God can't bring life out of, that God can't bring life and blessing too. There is no darkness that we face that God can't transform. This is the point of this series, right? Transformational stories. We serve a God of transformation. And you know, I know from my own experience that when we're in that place of darkness, when we're in that place where it feels like life has just hit us out of nowhere and brought us to our knees, when we're in that place where it feels like maybe we're in a prison, This can be a hard message to hear. You might think, you know what, you don't know my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how hard I'm finding this. I don't have any hope. I've been in that place many, many times. But I want you to know today that the Lord is with you. And that there is no circumstance, no situation that he cannot transform. Can you imagine? Joseph must have felt on both occasions that his life was over. The first time when he lost his family and went into slavery... That must have been it. He must have thought, that's it. my life's done. And yet God transformed that situation. And the second time, when he gets thrown into prison, accused of something he didn't even do, he must have thought, this is it, my life's done. And yet God transformed that situation. You know, a favorite verse of many is Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we read that verse and we imagine there that the word good means easy. But it doesn't. If we read the verses before it, we discover that Romans 8 is really talking about suffering. And more than that, it's talking about suffering that we face as Christians, as followers, as believers in Jesus. It says even us who have experienced the first fruits grown inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship. That's those of us that already believe and already have a faith. We're not promised this easy life. And it talks about how when we're in those situations, when we're in that darkness, in that place where we don't even know what to pray, it says when you don't know what to pray, it says that the Spirit intercedes for you, on behalf of you, with groans. And maybe this morning you're in that dark place. Maybe this morning you're in that prison, whether it's a prison of your own making whether it's a mistake that you've made, whether you can trace where you went wrong, as we sometimes can, or whether it's a a dark place or a prison that's just been enforced upon you, that you've been thrown into unfairly. I want you to know this morning that, firstly, the Lord is with you. And secondly, that God, even now, 
can bring life out of your situation. I wonder if the, the band would come and join me on stage. I don't know how this uh, story is landing with you this morning. You know, I think one of the things I just love, I, I, I love reading about this story this week, getting into it was just all the, the little details, you know, the little details about Joseph getting, getting lost on his way to, to sort of look for his brothers and the, the way the brothers respond to Joseph. And I love that because it just, it, it makes it real, right? We're able to recognize ourselves in this story. It grounds it. It tells us this is, this is something that happened. And similarly, we can recognize this story sometimes in our own life. Whether we're in that place now or, or whether we've been in that place, there's no, we know there's times that we've been brought to our knees where we felt like we've lost everything that we had. Where we felt like there's no hope for tomorrow. And if that's you today, particularly if you've come here thinking, I don't even know why I've come because it all just feels dark. I just really want to pray for you this morning. If you just close your eyes with me. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this story of, of Joseph. Father, that it's so real that we can recognize our own lives in it. Father, sometimes we know we're in a bad place because we've made a bad choice. You know, we're in a bad place because we've not lived the way that we should live. Father, maybe we've gone our own way. Father, maybe we've been too self-reliant. Maybe we've become arrogant, conceited, and it's left us in a tricky circumstance. But sometimes, God, it, it just feels like we've done nothing wrong. It feels like we've made all the right steps, and yet somehow we've still ended up in the wrong place. We've still ended up in a hard place, in a dark place. And God, it can feel hopeless. It can feel dark. But Father, I thank you that this story reminds us that even then, you are with us. Father, as your word says, you never leave us, you never abandon us, you never forsake us. And Father God, I thank you that you are the God of restoration, that you are the God of resurrection. Father, I think of your son Jesus as he died on that cross and was buried in the tomb for three days. The hopelessness that must have been felt by those that followed him, that those that knew him. It must have felt like the end had come. That there was no hope anymore. And yet three days later, you brought about new life, new resurrection. You changed the game. Father, I know in my own life there are so many times that you have changed the game, that you have brought about new life and resurrection. Father, that you've brought me back from a place that I thought I would never return from. And Father, for all of those here this morning that are just in that place of not knowing what tomorrow will bring, of not feeling as there is any hope, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit right now would just begin to rest upon them. Father God, that you would just be interceding for them, Father God, that you would just restore their hope and their trust in you, that you are able to bring new life, that you are able to bring new resurrection out of their circumstances. Father God, I pray there would be an outpouring of hope this morning, a recognition that you never leave us, that you are with us, and that even when it seems like you're not, 
you are working. 